Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. This morning, we're in a sermon series called Following Jesus in the Wilderness. Right in the center of the Gospel of Luke, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. In the middle of this Gospel from Luke is a ten-chapter journey. Starting at the end of chapter 9, Luke tells us that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And from that moment on, Jesus is on the move until he reaches the city of Jerusalem. And so as a church, we're looking at this 10-chapter travelogue. But what we notice about his travels through the wilderness toward Jerusalem is that Jesus does not travel alone. He has followers. And as he journeys, he teaches. He teaches the disciples what it means to love him, what it means to follow him. And so this section, in a lot of senses, is really just a basic introduction to what it means to follow Jesus. It answers the question... Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? Maybe you're asking that question this morning. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And maybe you're asking that question and you've been a Christian your whole life or your whole adult life or for many, many years. And yet, Your life has you asking again, who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? Or perhaps you're here this morning and you're asking this question really for the first time in your life. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? Well, no matter who you are, either way, this section of Luke has something to say if we listen. So let me just read the text this morning. We'll be looking in verse 25 of chapter 10. And there are two very familiar passages, which is good, but sometimes familiarity with something can uh, shut us down to learning things new. And so we'll just be praying before we read, or after we read the text, that God would speak afresh to us this morning through His Word, as familiar as it may be. So I'll read the text. I encourage you to listen along. We'll pray and we'll be started. This is verse 25. And behold, the lawyer stood up, To put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered the Lord, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came, to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into, his, into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So, Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. And you give us your Holy Spirit so that we would see, and in many cases this morning, rediscover wondrous things from your word. We want to see the supreme beauty and glory of Jesus this morning. And so that's our prayer. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, so every summer, many of you know, our family vacations on a small lake in Michigan. And very early in the morning, the lake water is like glass. And so it's the perfect time to paddleboard, if you have a paddleboard. And for folks who have a paddleboard, my, my wife. And so it's the perfect time. You wake up early enough, the sun just rises, you get the paddleboard, and you just basically get to go anywhere you want. No struggle at all. that's early in the morning. <laughs> so that's a thing. What I normally do is choose coffee and a book and wait till later in the day to get on that paddleboard, which means I usually paddleboard when the lake is not like a glass. And instead, there is this sort of cross current that's going on. I want to go this way. Have any of you been here? I want to go this way, but the cross current is taking me this way. It's like the water is moving to this corner of the lake, and it doesn't matter if you want to go this way because it's taking you that way. And then, by the way, once you get there, you're not coming back. You're not coming back because the cross current is so strong. And when I think about the last few years of my life, I think of this image. I want to go this way. This is the direction I want to go. But something sort of within me is pulling me in a different direction. It's like a spiritual cross current in my soul. I want to be present to my family. I want to be loving to others and my neighbors. I want to be present to the Lord. And yet there's something deep in my soul that creates a struggle. It's like a cross current that's pulling it away from the things that I want to do and that I love to do and that I long to do. It's that struggle that we all have when we get a text while eating dinner or having a coffee with a friend. And you hear it buzz in your pocket. You know what I'm talking about? You get that buzz, and then it buzzes again. 
Maybe it buzzes three times. And what happens? You want to be present to your friend over coffee. You want to hear them. You want to ask good questions. But the whole time you're thinking, what is going on in my pocket here? What is going on? What disaster is happening in my life that I'm not aware of? And suddenly you are everywhere except in front of the person. Listening and being present. I think it's a common struggle. How many of us feel uniquely distracted these days? Anybody? Maybe I'm just alone, but there's something going on where I am uniquely distracted. I want to, you know, we all want to be there for our neighbors, but there's something that's pulling us in a different direction. We want to be present to the Lord. We want to spend more time in prayer with the Lord. Maybe we want to read the Bible more. Maybe we want to read that book or engage in this podcast or whatever it is. But there's something in us that is pulling us in a different direction. And here's the thing. We are as humans made in the image of God. We are designed by Him to love. To love Him and to love others. But there seems to be this spiritual cross current inside of our soul that pulls us away from love. Something pulls us away from God. Something pulls us away from others. And the Bible actually has a word for this. And the word is familiar to many of us. The word is sin. And if you were to translate it or get this word in the Greek or the Hebrew that we translate sin, you would understand that what it means is missing the mark. Missing the mark. Sin causes our paddleboard, in other words, to go this way instead of this way. It pulls at us. Sin does. Our sin. So I think of my lawn when I think about sin. Bear with me on this one. There's, I have a spigot, okay? Is that how you say that? Spigot on the side of my house. And this thing is broke. Here's what happens. I, I take my garden hose or my lawn hose and I secure it to my spigot and I turn the water on. And what is supposed to happen is that water that's in my house is supposed to come through the spigot and cleanly enter into the hose and then go exactly where I want it to go on the lawn. What happens in my house is the water exits my house, goes to the spigot, and then there is an explosion of water. So that 80% of that water goes to the concrete and probably seeps into the foundation of my house. And about the rest of it, about 20%, goes through the hose where I want it to go. The spigot is a human heart. The spigot is a human heart. The human heart is designed to love well. Love being the water. But instead, there's this like mess of, of love going in every direction. And the soul doctors of old called this disordered love. Disordered love. They describe sin as disordered love. Our love, in other words, doesn't flow towards God as, it, as it's designed to. Our love doesn't flow towards others as it's meant to. Instead, like the broken spigot... This love is disordered and it's just flying all over the place and barely any of it is landing it where it should be. We're loving the wrong things in the wrong way and in the wrong order. Amen? And the Bible says, you know, we're born into the world with these broken spigots in need of a new spigot. And Jesus comes to give us a new spigot, a new heart. But even with a new heart, 
We struggle to love well, don't we? The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He says, and I'll quote him, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do... I bet you're thinking, what is going on? (laughs) For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so Paul, the apostle, is admitting that there is a spiritual cross-current in his soul, and it feels like a war, it feels like a battle. He wants to love God, he wants to love others, but he feels pulled away. There's a battle. And I see this dynamic actually at play in our passage this morning that we just read out loud. Two very familiar passages Jericho Road, and we'll call it Martha's House. Jericho Road and Martha's House. But notice what they have in common. Both in Jericho and the Road of Jericho and also Martha's House, they feature failures to love. So first look at the Jericho Road again with me. Here the priest and the Levite fail in neighbor love. They see a man in serious need and something literally pulls them to the other side of the road. Jesus doesn't tell us, Luke doesn't tell us what pulls them to the other side of the road. Maybe it was fear. You know, they were probably serving at the temple. And they were walking home. That's what priests and Levites did. They walked home down the Jericho Road towards Jericho where they lived. It's kind of like if some of you work downtown and you head back home to Worthington or back home to wherever you live. That's sort of the, the commute for them. And so maybe they were tired from serving the Lord and they saw this and they're just like, you know what? I can't do it today. Besides, I've been serving the Lord. It's okay. Right? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. Jesus doesn't tell us. Maybe it was just simply inconvenient. Maybe they were worried about the purity laws. They say, don't touch a corpse if you're a priest. We don't really know. But, and I mean, perhaps we're not told because we're being asked as we read and engage us to, to search our own hearts. Why is it that we wouldn't do that? But what we do know in this passage is that it is a failure of neighbor love. Now consider Martha's house. Right after this story. Her story is tricky because she's literally serving Jesus and Jesus' disciples who are on the road, who are in the wilderness. And unlike the priest and the Levite, uh, she's doing something that's hard to argue against, isn't it? Something uh, most of us, I think, would applaud, but Jesus gently rebukes her. Martha, Martha. That's gentle language, but it is a challenge. And Jesus gently rebukes her, and Luke tells us Martha was, quote, distracted with much serving. Hang on to that phrase. Because that word distracted literally means to be pulled or dragged away. Martha was pulled away from love of God by much serving. The religious elite on Jericho Road were pulled away from neighborhood. The 
for their own reasons. Isn't that our story too? Isn't that our story too? The Bible is a mirror. We are meant to see our struggles in others. We are meant to see ourselves in Scripture. We are Martha, and we are the Levite, and we are the priest. We too are pulled away from a life of love for so many reasons. But the Bible is more than a mirror to our brokenness. It's also a window into the kingdom of God. And though we get glimpses of failures to love, maybe even mirrors of failures to love in which we are to see ourselves, we also get windows into the truth and the beauty and the goodness of Jesus and our inheritance in Jesus. And so we see that in these two places, Jericho Road and Martha's house, we see not just failures to love, but we see actually love on display. And from two very unlikely people, actually, the Samaritan and Mary. So unlikely love or unlikely hero, unlikely teacher, number one, is the Samaritan stranger. So the Samaritan is unlikely for a lot of reasons. We'll just talk about two. First, he's not Jewish. And Jesus is teaching and talking to a Jewish leader right now. That's a Bible scholar, a a lawyer, it says. So a Bible scholar. Jesus is teaching a Bible scholar about neighbor love. And he uses not a Jewish priest or a Jewish Levite as an illustration of neighbor love, but who does he choose to teach this lawyer about neighbor love? The outsider, the Samaritan. So that by itself is unlikely. But secondly, the Samaritan was hated in those days. He was despised by Israelites and vice versa. And so I would compare them to like Ohio State and Michigan, but that trivializes actually what was going on in those days. And so some historians actually compare the tension in those days that Jesus was walking into to maybe Israel and Palestine today. And Jesus wants the Samaritan to teach this Israelite about neighborhood, which is just shocking. But that's how Jesus teaches us how to love our neighbor. But then notice who Jesus offers as the illustration of love of God. So if that's neighbor love, what about love of God? Well, it's Mary. Luke tells us that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet instead of helping Martha in her hospitality. And there's all kinds of shocking things going on in Martha's house. First, to sit at a rabbi's feet. Like Paul sat at a rabbi's feet. He talks about it. What that means is that he is a disciple of that rabbi. And so what Mary is doing is Mary is saying to the world, I am a disciple of this rabbi. And women did not do that in those days. Martha was in a culturally acceptable spot for women to be. Mary was doing something in uh, the only men did, which is take on discipleship, apprenticeship with Jesus. And second of all, historians tell us that women were not even allowed in the common rooms of homes, let alone sit at a rabbi's feet. So Martha is likely upset for all kinds of reasons about her sister Mary. 
But Jesus, what does Jesus do? He defends Mary. He elevates this moment in history and in Scripture to be a beautiful picture of discipleship. So right away, I think we see a very important truth about our journey with Jesus. This is what we're doing. We're asking the question, what does it mean to walk with Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Who is Jesus? These are the questions we're asking. And we automatically, right away, see an amazing answer to that question. If you are on a journey with Jesus in the wilderness, you better get comfortable with your world being turned upside down. And the categories that you've been given to be turned upside down. Because Jesus turns everything upside down. Those on the outside are now on the inside. Those cast out by the world are now welcomed in by Jesus. Those who we deem unable to get it in Jesus' economy are teaching us. Because they get it. The Samaritan, Mary, get it. They get it. Those we would expect to get it, the lawyer, the Bible scholar, the Levite, the priest, they don't get it. And that's the way of Jesus. And what I want to do as we round out here is I want to learn from the Samaritan stranger and from Mary. I want them to teach us what it looks like to love one. Because these two stories, in a way, belong together. Often we keep them separate, but they belong together because they answer the lawyer's question. What does the lawyer ask? Jesus. Well, Lord... What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do you, what do the scriptures say? What does the law say? How do you read it? And he answers, the lawyer, uh, love God and love neighbor. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And Jesus does what? He affirms that answer. He says, bingo. Love God and love neighbor. And then he illustrates what those two things mean. First, love of God, and then well, first love of neighbor and then love of God. And so let's just look at that together. The Samaritan stranger first shows us what love of neighbor really looks like. We could probably make a list of 20 things. We could probably do a full sermon series on just the Jericho Road. But I want to just draw our attention to at least three things that the Samaritan stranger teaches us about neighbor love. And the first is this. The neighbor love is unlimited. In verse 25, if you take a look, the lawyer puts Jesus to the test, which is never a good idea, by the way, <laughs> putting Jesus to the test. Um, and he asks a very common question in those days. How can I inherit eternal life? I said in those days, uh, the truth is, I think this question is still very much alive. We just don't outright say it like that. I think actually underneath everything we say and do is this question. How do I inherit eternal life? We all want eternal life. We all want God. God set eternity into our hearts. And even if we are rejecting God, even if we reject God in theory, we're still haunted by this God hunger. And everything we do is really asked. It's just like this lawyer asking the question, how can I inherit eternal life? Everything we do is that question. And while Jesus answers this lawyer and says in response, I think you know the answer to this question. And so the lawyer recites a prayer from Deuteronomy called the Shema.
which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind. And then the lawyer adds an important verse from Leviticus about love of neighbor. And let's just say right away, this is an amazing answer. Actually, something that Jesus often said in his ministry. And you might even wonder if, if that's what the Lord is doing, is repeating what he has heard Jesus saying before. It's an amazing answer. And so Jesus says, yes, you're right. Your theology is perfect. But then what does he say? He says, go and do likewise. In other words, he's saying, you are right in your head, but you're not demonstrating this at all. You seem to know it, but you don't know it. And so the lawyer probably is upset by this. After all, he was trying to put Jesus to the test. And so he wants to, the text says, justify himself. What does that mean? Well, it just means he wants to end this conversation on top. It's like king of the hill. He wants to be at the top of the hill by the time this conversation is over. So he asks a trick question. He says, okay, who is my neighbor? He wants to have the last word. And so he asks this question, who is my neighbor, which one theologian calls an unanswerable question. Why? Because underneath that question lies an assumption, and that assumption is this, that the world is divided into two classes, those who are neighbors and those who are not neighbors. When you say, who is my neighbor, there is an assumption that says there are some folks in this world who are not our neighbor. And so Jesus doesn't allow this assumption to stand. The lawyer wants to set limits on his neighbor love, and Jesus doesn't let him. He shows us with a Samaritan that neighbor love is unlimited. It's anyone you encounter is your neighbor. Anyone. And so it's unlimited. Second thing we see from the Samaritan is that neighbor love is profoundly helpful. Helpful is the word I like to use. So in verse 37, we see the one who gave mercy. I love the word mercy. Mercy is amazing. But sometimes we get a little bit too high in the sky when we think of mercy and it doesn't ever land. When we say, what is helpful to somebody? This idea of mercy lands. Mercy is giving somebody what they need. It's helping them. And the Samaritan shows mercy by helping. And just notice how the Samaritan shows real help to this person in need. He provides immediate help. He provides long-term help. He says, the Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Immediate help. He put the man on his own donkey and took him to the inn where he took care of him. Immediate help. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, which is about two weeks' worth of inn staying, if you were going to pay uh, a night at the inn. So about two weeks' worth there. Where, uh, and he handed the innkeeper these two denarii, saying, take care of this man, and if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And so this man is actually helping this person. He's thinking immediate term. He's thinking long term. He understands his limits. He has to go somewhere. And so he honors his limits and he honors, honors his own boundaries while also maintaining health. Which is why he gives the innkeeper money. So this is help on display. Help. And third, the third thing we see from the Samaritan neighborhood is costly. It's self-giving. The Samaritan pours out his time, his energy, but also his money, his resources. Neighbor love, we learn here, is 
inconvenient, often costly. It's pouring out for the sake of others, which is why we need our cup to be full for us to give. So we don't give out of this inner void in our heart, but we give because our heart is filled. So I want to, I've shared this with you before, but there's a professor, his name's Adam Grant, and he talks about two kinds of people, givers and takers. He writes, quote, every day employees make decisions about whether to act like givers or like takers. He's talking about the business realm here. When they act like givers, they contribute to others without seeking anything in return. They might offer assistance, share knowledge, or make valuable introductions. But when they act like takers, they try to get other people to serve their ends while carefully guarding their own expertise and time. And so there's givers and takers in every arena of life. And what we see here in this glimpse of the kingdom is that the Samaritan is a giver. He's a giver. He's one of radical giving. And Jesus gives uh, to us so that we would give to others. In fact, the whole journey that Jesus is on at this very moment that he's sharing this story with this Lord is a journey toward Jerusalem. The whole very journey that he is on is a giving journey. His entire journey to Jerusalem is like this road to Jericho. He doesn't walk to the other side of the street when he sees us in our need. For God so loved, he gave. And when, he, and when we receive his giving, we are able to love our neighbor, not out of neediness, but out of an overflow. Have you ever noticed in your life, this is just as you're at dinner perhaps and there's others around you, it's a lot easier to share your food when you're full. <laughs> you ever noticed that before? You, also, you suddenly get a lot more friendly when you've already eaten. Yeah, yeah, I have to have this. But if you haven't eaten yet, it's very hard to share. I think there's something like that that goes on with the gospel of Jesus. The good news of Jesus says that we are filled supernaturally with all that we need by Jesus. So that means that we can share freely. Because we don't need anything from you. All of our needs have been met. We can give away everything. We can give what it takes to love someone well. Because we're full. We're full of it. And that's what the Samaritan teaches us about neighborhood. I want to take a quick look at Mary and what she teaches us about love of God. Mary shows us what love of God looks like, and I see a lot of things, but we'll talk about three. Love of God is, first of all, very present before God. In verse 39, we see Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and listening. That's what we see. Mary shows us that love of God is being with Jesus, fundamentally. She embodies in this moment what the Shema, love the Lord your God with all of who you are, looks like. If you want a visual image of the Shema, if you want a visual image of what the lawyer says is uh, eternal life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your mind. Look at Mary. Look at her. All of who she is is at the feet of Jesus and she is learning from Jesus. She's loving God with her heart, her soul, her strength, her mind. She's present before the Lord. Peace Gazera calls us the difference between being with Jesus and doing for Jesus. And there it shows us. The love of God begins with presence. We present ourselves before Him. 
It's also proactive. Notice that Mary is proactive in her love. She takes the initiative. She's crossing all kinds of unbiblical cultural barriers and her eagerness to learn and teach others about Jesus. She's not passive and just taking what comes, but she boldly sits at the feet of Jesus, opening herself up to criticism. And notice, too, that love of God is primary for Mary. Mary gives priority to discipleship. She gives priority to to the presence of Jesus. Martha seems to elevate her doing for Jesus above her being with Jesus, which does not mean uh, what she did was inherently wrong, but the text shows us that she was pulled away from Jesus in her service. How many of us who have been in church maybe for a year at least know what it's like to actually be pulled away from the Lord Jesus in our service? It's one of the craziest paradoxes of ministry is that you can actually avoid Jesus by serving Him and busying yourself in His name. And yet Mary here shows us that there's one thing necessary. Jesus says so. Love of God precedes all else. Love God and neighbor. That's this text. Love God and neighbor. We see neighbor love with the Samaritan. We see love of God with Mary. One scholar, Scott McKnight, he calls this combination of the Shema and love of neighbor, the Jesus Creed. How Jesus takes these two things and sort of says, this is summary of what it means to have eternal life. It is, in a way, if you think about it, far more than just eternity in heaven, which it is that, but it is also a kind of quality of life. It's a good life. It's a life that's reoriented to Eden. Because after all, we were made to love, remember? We were made to love God. We were made to serve and love others. And so what we see with the Samaritan, with Mary, is a sort of return to Eden, a sort of life as it's meant to be lived, a beautiful picture of what it means to love God and to love others, and it should be enticing to us. It's a quality of life, a life of love. And yet we see with Martha and we see with the religious elite that there are things that pull us and drag us away from this life of love. But we have two heroes in this text Predominantly, actually, one here with Jesus. And so let me just ask you a few questions as we sort of think through what this would mean for us, how this text could impact us. And the first is this. How do you, let me just ask some questions, how do you define the good life? How do you define the good life? I think Jesus shows us what eternal life looks like. Life with God from now until eternity. He shows us what it looks like. It's a life of love. It's how we're made to live. It's going with the grain of the universe. And Jesus is commending and elevating a life of loving God, loving Jesus and others in our life. And so we need to, I think, adjust our vision of what the good life is to align with this. The good life is not about chasing our own desires and chasing our own whims, but the good life, true freedom, is when we find ourselves Loving God and loving others. Second question I want to ask is this. Who are your heroes? Who are your heroes? This passage, I think, encourages us to choose our heroes well. Are there men and women in your life that you look up to that look like Mary? Are there men and women in your life that you look up to that look like this Samaritan? Well, there should be. 
and, and they should be our heroes. You know, one, one philosopher, Jamie Smith, says, we become what we love, reflecting an ancient observation from Augustine and others, which is ultimately a biblical observation. We become what we love, so we need to choose the heroes we love well. And when we see these beautiful pictures of neighbor love and love of God, we ought to love it. We ought to love it. Cherish it. See it as what it is. It's a beautiful picture. It's, a, it's an insight into the good life, eternal life, life of the kingdom with Jesus. Let me just ask you this. Lastly, is your doing for God outpacing your being with God? Jesus is clear here. Mary is doing the one thing. She prioritizes time with Jesus. She knows that staying near Jesus is the only thing that can sustain any kind of life of discipleship anyway. She takes advantage of his presence. I want her to encourage you to cultivate spiritual practices in your life that puts you in the presence of Jesus. You're always in his presence. But puts you in an awareness of his presence. Like Zacchaeus, who climbed the tree to get a, a sight, a vision of Jesus, like we can climb trees too. There's things that we can do in our daily life to get us in the pathway of Jesus, as David Mathis points out. And what are those? You know, this has been called the Mary Way. The Mary Way. The Mary Way is putting yourself at the feet of Jesus and seeing it as, as vitally important. And if we're busy with ministry, which many of us are, if we're busy with serving others, which many of us are, we need to cultivate this, and we need to see this as an invitation. Maybe just spend a moment in your day stopping what you're doing and just saying, Jesus, I am here. I am here with you. And experiencing the promise of His presence. And then maybe at the end of your day, you can just spend like one minute rewinding the tape and just being like, God, when in my day was I sitting at your feet? When did I know and experience your presence? And when was I pulling away from you? When was I pulled away from you? And distracted by many things. And if you can create a list, just sitting that in your mind and heart as you're engaging in prayer through that, that is amazing. Because here's what happens, and this happened to me. You start to long for those moments of Mary sitting at his feet, and you start to really just not like the moments where you've been pulled away. And that works on your affections in your heart so that you start to desire the things of the kingdom. You start to desire the ways of Jesus. Because after all, it's at the feet of Jesus in his presence that we are reminded of his great love for us. there's no way that we can sustain the life of ministry without that. Just remember Jesus here, even as he teaches, shows his heart to Mary, he is on the way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to die for all of our selfishness. All of the ways that we are pulled away from loving God and loving others well. When Luke says his face is 
set towards Jerusalem, what Luke is saying is, Jesus knows. Jesus knows all of our lack of love. And yet, what does he do? He sits with us, still, teaches us, is patient with us, and on the cross, dies for us. We cannot experience that afresh in any kind of way that will sustain a life of love towards others unless we are with Mary at his feet. Let her teach you. Let her teach you what it is to love God, to love others well. You know, oftentimes we talk about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations. The way I like to think about that is with instruments. There's two ways to teach an instrument. The one way to teach an instrument is by force. You know, your your teacher kind of inspires fear in you. So you practice because you don't want, it's like going to the dentist when you see your music instructor. You don't want the dentist to give you the talk. Just like you don't want your piano instructor to give you the talk. And so you're practicing out of fear. You don't want your parents to be upset. You don't want to be embarrassed at the recital. There's all kinds of reasons why you, you are practicing. None of them are love of music and love of the sound that it can make. Occasionally, if you're playing this instrument, you're like, this thing is amazing. This is a work of art. What an amazing privilege it is to play something that is beautiful. Bless others with it as well. And suddenly you start to practice. Not, you don't even think about the recital. You don't even think about the instructor. You're glad you have an instructor because the instructor is there to help you draw out more of the instrument. And what has happened between uh, example A and example B? I'll tell you what's happened. Love has happened. This was coercion and this was love. And the way of Jesus is one of love. Jesus changes us from the inside out and makes our affections so that we want to love our neighbor. The picture of the Samaritan becomes beautiful to us. And suddenly we're walking down the road and here's the opportunity to to extend neighbor love to somebody. And while we used to go this way, we're suddenly, in a way, compelled to go this way and to help. We're compelled, like Mary, to go sit at Jesus' feet. Because we know that is a good way. And we want it. And Jesus does that for us. He unlocks our hearts to desire. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that with us this morning. You would unlock our hearts to love what you love. And Jesus, we do praise you that for all of our acts that go against the grain that are acts that are not loving of you or others, that you have paid for that with the cross and died for that, dealt with the penalty for that, Lord. But beyond that, you also call us by your resurrection into a life of love. A restored Eden where our hearts are recalibrated and the spigot loses less and less water to the concrete. And it lands more and more on you and on others. <coughs> so we pray that you would do that, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.